Welcome to the Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar podcast. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. This week, we're going to be speaking to Chris Renfro. He is a prominent criminal defense attorney in Queens County. I worked with Chris for a little while when I was out in Queens, and I can promise you it's going to be a really quality interview. Fireworks. Fireworks indeed. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. Chris is a super interesting guy. And, you know, unlike some of our past guests, Chris is someone who, you know, from the time he was five years old, really wanted to be a defense attorney and is a defense attorney through and through. Um, I think you're going to enjoy it. So here's our interview. All right. So, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. I thought the first place we would start today would be for you to just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like. I grew up in upstate New York in a place called Nedro, where when I could look out the window, I could actually see cows moving around, you know. So it was an interesting environment, kind of quiet. What did your parents do? My father had a trucking business, and my mother worked for General Electric. So they were pretty well off for Syracuse standards. When you were a child growing up, did you ever think about wanting to be a lawyer? Was that something that was ever on your radar? You know, I, I keep having this flashback that one day I'm going to get it right. Because I would watch these old shows, Perry Mason, and halfway through he'd get the guy to say, you're right, I did it. I don't know why I did it, but your client's innocent. And I'm still looking for that moment. But I've know. seen you do that before. I've seen <laughs> I, you have I'm that trying. success I've been, in the courtroom yeah, before. Don't I, be so modest. <laughs> so there was, never, there was never a time in your childhood. Did you, did you know any lawyers growing up? Was that sort of any ever thought? Nah, I just had this, you know... Um, I, I was one of those guys that I was talk so much that even in the winter, after a while, my mom would get tired and say, could you just go out and play in the snow for a while? Picking a career, I think I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. Was there any reason? Was it, was it just Perry Mason or was there something more? Well, I had some clients, too, at a young age, too. Like my, <laughs> my, my cousins were, like, always getting in trouble. Chris, what do we do about this? Or, you know, even before I had the title, I had to give sort of legal advice, you know. You know, don't carry the marijuana in the backseat of the car. It's supposed to be in the trunk, you idiot. You know, that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> so, so I was kind of advising at an early age, you know, on, sort of, on some things. And it was, it was always on that side. You always wanted to be sort of the defense attorney there was never there was never a thought of being a lawyer because you wanted to put the bad guys away no I, I never had that that feeling and you know and there was I had actually I was supposed to play football also and you know I think one of the it's kind of weird sometimes out of tragedies are like the best things like I have a bad right knee because when I was getting off the ground someone dove into my knee okay so that kind of ended my football career and then I actually had to figure out something else to do you know what I mean and uh, so I remembered. I always like you know talking and being in front of people. So I thought you hurt your knee cow tipping. That's where I thought it happened. No, no. football <laughs> helmet to the knee. <laughs> terrible. Be prepared for a lot more of those terrible jokes <laughs> in the next know. hour. That was a good callback joke. I think <laughs> callback to the cow tipping. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up going to law school. When I was like eighteen, I thought it was the right thing to do. I got some my my first wife got pregnant. I got married, and you know. I ended up were, were you like, still living in upstate New York? At I was this point? in upstate New York. And I ended up selling suits in Sears and Roebuck. And I was selling suits in Sears and Roebuck. And, um, you know, I think my father got killed in a trucking accident. So I had to kind of, you know, you know, that moment when you're trying to reflect, like, who was it that I wanted to be? And 
although I had crazy clients and I might have done some crazy things at some point, I that was the guy that you could always depend on to come and rescue you no matter what. You know what I mean? He was the guy. He would, you know, if you, you know, I can remember him like, you know, coming through the snow to pull my car out or something from the snow drifts. So I think that it kind of motivated me to like go back to school. So I, I would work like five days a week and, um, but I had, because it was sales, you have Tuesday and Thursday off. So I went to a community college and then I got that degree and then I went to Cortland and then I got a, a, a scholarship to go to, I was about to go to Syracuse because, you know, that's all I knew was Syracuse. Uh, who wants to go to Syracuse? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. I, 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 I upgraded. I upgraded. I went to Buffalo. They gave me a fellowship, to, a scholarship to go to Buffalo. So When you say upgraded, you mean you just went higher, <laughs> more north. Well, I right? went from <laughs> snow to gigantic snow. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you'd come out and, you know, I'd be, you'd, you'd look across the street and you wouldn't be able to see the other side snow, the lake effects. So. It sounds like your dad was a pretty big influence. Did he have any thoughts on law and order that kind of directed you towards criminal defense versus thinking about doing prosecution or some other kind of, of law? What, what, it, not really, but I, I just have to say this about my dad. Whenever there was a kid who was screwing up, they'd bring him to my dad because, you know, you know, one, he was a good guy, but also, you know, they'd all be like, you know, he's kind of scary. We don't want to get on the bad side of Mr. Renfro. So all of a sudden kids who were like robbing banks would start going to school and, you know, I don't know, he was, he was an interesting guy. But um, what, what did you study when you were in school? I did political science, and, and um, as a matter of fact, one of my professors, uh, 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 Father Berrigan, when I told him I was going to go to law school, he said to me, you know, and this is probably why I'm not the richest lawyer in the world, you, can, you know, I'm going to be mad at you if you don't defend a guy just because he doesn't have any money, you know, so, you know. And then he got in trouble for pouring blood on a nuclear reactor or something, and you know, you know, on the warheads or something. I don't know if he's still a professor, but <laughs> but he was like on that. Wait, he uh, got in trouble for pouring blood break, onto a nuclear reactor, like um, like facilities where you know, oh, where, and then yeah. he would pour human blood I've on read, the I've bombs and stuff like. And, yo, so like this a big was, thing. I yeah. thought it was yeah. just on fur. They do it on nuclear reactors. No, back in the back yeah. in the sixties, this was like yeah. a big a big yeah. thing. Yeah, he was like into nuclear facilities and and like. Nuns and priests. Nuns. And yeah. yeah, exactly. And they exactly. would, you know, he was that, you know, so he, I think he wanted me to take a vow of poverty. I've been trying to avoid it, but, you know, you know, some days are good, some days are bad, but <laughs> all in all it works, you know what I mean? Did you, when you were studying political science, was it because you thought, oh, this will be a good, a good thing to help me, you know, go into a career in law? Or was it, you know, did you have aspirations maybe to be in the political world or... Not at the time. I mean, there's some interesting discussions now because I've, you know, been around for a while. But at the time, I actually wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. Um, when I was in Buffalo, uh, I got approached by the district attorney about working up there. But then I, got, I received an offer for a job at Legal Aid. I would not have minded being a prosecutor, uh, but you know, later on in my career, then. There were some prosecutors that say, why don't you join us? But by then I was already a defense counsel. You know what I mean? Sure. But you know what? There's an interesting thing that you, as a, as you should be able to do both sides. If you do it right, there shouldn't be a problem. You know what I mean? And, you at know, the same time? Not at the same time. <laughs> but but, but um, there have been times, you know, I don't, can't remember if I did it, but sometimes they designate a defense counsel to be like a special prosecutor because like if the prosecutor is conflicted or something like that, 
Um, so you, it's it's the law. And one of the other shows is kind of crazy. And, you know, I used to sit, I'm, I was, I guess I was kind of a boring kid. I used to watch this show, Dragnet. And sure. they'd have those, those have those guys with the shoots. And, and the wife would be like, you know, but they came through the wind. And I, I think my child was eating peanut butter. And he, they'd go, like, ma'am, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And, he, and he'd write it down. And he would be investigating the case. And, and it's one of the things that always stuck with me, you know, like, uh, you know, and, my daughter, um, she, she's actually a, actually did journalism at, at Arizona State. So you'd watch, and you know, one time she had to do this this paper. I think on there were like thirteen people on death row in Chicago, and the journalist students went out and investigated the case, and they found that eleven of them were absolutely innocent. It's crazy. Yeah, and they were ready, and so they put a moratorium on the death penalty. And, all, and I think it might have been yeah, what, which state was it? Illinois. And they put a moratorium on. But that's kind of, you know, like I said, still, you know, doing my Don Quixote over here. You know what I mean? Sure. One client at a time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, it's interesting. You brought up now two different TV shows that you feel like you were you were inspired by to sort of go into the law. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's um, for me, I think it's kind of like a calling. You know what I mean? Um, was there was there ever anything else sort of when you were in college? Did you ever think? Maybe I'll be a journalist, or maybe I'll. Did any did that ever cross your mind, or really was you were you were solely focused on being a defense attorney? Once I got over the mistakes of my misspent youth, you know what I mean. How do I explain that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, there there were always temptations that try to pull you aside. Sure, and. Either the police liked my smile and my cousins got in trouble, or I was you smart a, enough. You do have a very nice smile, I will yeah, say that. <laughs> thank you. Or I was smart enough to say, sometimes would help. I remember having a girlfriend who said, do not go with your cousin because he's going to get in a lot of trouble. And so I don't. we did something else, which I don't think we're supposed to speak about on the air. And, <laughs> and just to let you know, he got in a lot of trouble. I mean, you know, I, I, when I say he got in a lot of trouble, I mean, trouble like he called my house one day when I was out and he said, this is cousin Bobby. And my wife answered the phone. So this was like a long distance call. She said, we don't have a cousin Bobby. And she hung up. That's how much trouble he was in. (laughs) It was trouble beyond trouble. It was like, you don't want to know what kind of trouble he was in, but thankfully I wasn't there. So sometimes it's, you know, being lucky, having people who look out for you, like, um, like one of my patron saints in Queens was a judge, Kenny Brown. And he would like, you know, I don't know, as soon as I got to legal aid, he took a liking to me or something. And we'd have like, you know, long meetings on his couch and, you know, um, and, and he'd try to tell me, you know, do this, don't do that. And, you know, you gotta, I guess you gotta have people that look out for you. You know what I mean? And so I've been lucky like that. When you got to law school was the focus criminal defense and if it was it sounds like it was the focus what did you do when you got there to to make sure that you were going if you did anything to make sure that you were going to have a a career as a criminal defense attorney well I took a lot of clinics and did like uh, uh, mock trial but one of the interesting things that I did was and I think he's deceased now they sent me to this prisoner's rights clinic and I represented a guy Albert Washington you know, on a like a, he was doing like a habeas. He was actually convicted of killing two police officers in Harlem, and he was arrested 
because his machine gun jammed while he was trying to shoot two police officers in California. And it was interesting because, you know, he was fighting a war, you know, back in the, you know, in the 60s. There, I mean, I remember going to Detroit, you know, I, I was questioning how much my family loved me because they sent me to Detroit right after the riots. The place was like decimated, it's like a time where things that we don't really see anymore. And I'm talking with Albert and, you know, he's one of those people who he thought he was at war. You know what I mean? And uh, and so you try to figure out where where do you sit in this world? You know what I mean? Um, and so there's, it's kind of interesting because if you ever, there's this movie and there's a book, Ragtime, and part of it's about this, uh, gentleman that the, the Irish, uh, black gentleman, Irish, uh, fire department, they trash his car and it, it starts him on this whole path where he's like bombing the fire department. And there's another character who's trying to talk to him, like, listen, that you, you're, you, that's not the way to go that right. you know you're being destructive to the society so it's kind of like a uh, uh malcolm x martin luther king kind of thing but very interesting so i kind of felt that i was in that moment with him um but he was an interesting guy he did say one thing that scared me because i was there after the attica riots he goes you know if anything happens you're with me and you know walk out like what does he mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> what does he mean by that i mean <laughs> Were you were you representing him as part of a team in yeah, law school, or was it really was he really your well, client? I, you know, I remember uh, going into Attica, and I'd be by myself. I'd drive over to Attica, I'd wow. go in, I'd go and see him. And if I described the door in Attica, like you know, I've been in Rikers, the door in Attica, this door must have been like f- four feet thick, and when it closed behind you, boom, you're like, oh my god, you know. <laughs> and it was it was just. Uh, but he was an interesting person. What, very what, happened with, what happened with that case? I don't think he ever won his appeal. Um, he, um, I think he died in Attica. And it's, there's like spinoffs to that because he went to trial. He represented himself. And there were these other defendants, the Torres brothers. I think Kunstler represented them. And I think they were acquitted. And one of the Torreses actually went to law school, graduated law school, but no bar in the in the United States would ever admit him based on I guess character issues and recently I think he was arrested for a, a murder in the police station in California however those uh, I think he beat the, the charges but they were trying to tie him there with DNA on a cigarette or something like that you know? so those experiences as I can't imagine as a student walking into Attica and and speaking to someone who had committed murder how did those how did that experience shape your next few years at law school? How did it shape your early career? It made you hesitate a little bit, but I guess in some ways I kind of knew at this point who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. When you leave law school, do you immediately go and get a job in private practice or what what, what was I the first I actually did 3 and a half years at the Legal Aid Society. So we represented indigent people who were charged with crimes. And uh, after that, I actually still represented a lot of indigent defendants because we have something called like the 18B panel where you can get hired and, and, you know, the state will pay you like $75 an hour. And, you know, so you defend, you know, people who are charged with, 
you know, various crimes, up to homicides and stuff. Did you entertain other job opportunities out of law school, or was Legal Aid Society really sort of where you wanted to be? Honestly, I think the DA's office turned me down. I had this unique interview. I had this, like, bracelet, you know, I don't know. And the, the you know, and the interviewer, <laughs> it was like, you know, one of the Jamaican bracelets. and. Oh, what, what kind of bracelet? Oh, I thought I thought you had like a, a tracking <laughs> no, bracelet. No, no, like they saw and, they saw the bracelet on you, and they were like, this and they guy were like, is, you this know, what is trouble. that? The guy's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe I look like a, I don't know, but <laughs> so I, I never. Well, he kept he kept it in the trunk, though, not in the back seat. Now, I, the district attorney's office in Buffalo wanted to hire me, but um, I had met my wife, and she was from New York, and so she was going to New York. And I was going to New York, and so Legal Aid hired me, and the rest is history. And that was Legal Aid in Queens? Legal Aid in Queens, Do you yeah. remember at all the interview process, how you got the job, any kind of significant memories from that that period of time? You know, I think I failed the test with the the, the district attorney because there was. I remember that there was some question about if you gave your word to a defendant, if he revealed the source where somebody was kidnapped, that you wouldn't charge him with this or that. And I think my, my you know, I try to, you know, I, I've decided that a long time ago, I am too dumb to lie. So if I tell you X, you could take it to the bank. So if I tell this guy, listen, I'm not going to, if you tell me where the woman's buried and she's alive, I'm not going to charge you. You know, I kind of got to, you know, so I think I failed the test. That's that's a good DA question, you know. And then I guess the question was, with what? I won't charge you with what? You know what I mean? <laughs> I should have said, I won't charge him, but we'll get the feds to charge him. You know? <laughs> do you, do you, looking back on your career, was the was the, the couple years that you spent at Legal Aid a formative experience? Or was it did, did sort of just getting those reps? I know a lot of people talk about just sort of early in your career being in the courtroom and um, that type of work being... It's it's good to first of all. I think the first time doing criminal law, there's a there's a moment when someone goes to jail the first time when he gets like 30 days. You're like, oh my god, I, I failed. The guy got 30 days, and and later on, you know, you you you, it helps you get like a like a little bit of a thicker skin because it it's it's not. Um, Let's say he got 30 days, but he was supposed to get 30 years. That's a sizable victory. So, but at first you have to, you, there's a process of you, you, uh, having clients that go to jail, which you have to get used to, you know what I mean? And then, and then also there, there was special trainings, you know what I mean? Um, you know, about how to try a case. And that's the same with the district attorney with legal aid. They give you, there's a place where you can, you can have somebody who shepherds you through the process of how to try the case, how to open, how to ask questions, how to, I mean, you know, that's, that. It's, you need, I think you need some training. But that, it sounds like that emotional component of sort of dealing with people who are in these really oh, yeah. challenging situations was, was a difficult adjustment for you. You deal with people sometimes in the worst moments of their lives. You know what I mean? I mean, and sometimes you deal with people who are, have emotional problems. They're like have psychiatric problems. I, I know we're in later, but recently I did a case that was in the newspapers. A woman slashed a police officer in Cunningham Park. She was in the bathroom. The officer came in off duty with a dog, but she has a psychiatric problem. She can't have people near her. So to get out and get away, she slashed the officer in the neck, a superficial wound, but it was attempted murder. 
And so I had to deal with it. And we were actually able to get a not guilty plea by reason of mental disease and defect. And, you know, she's in a hospital. But what's interesting, I won't mention her name, but she had been an accountant at Deloitte and Touche, went to get on an airplane and her psychosis set in and she never got on the plane. And she, instead she went and got out and started sitting on a rock in Cunningham Park. And, you know, so you deal with interesting things. Do you, do you feel like over your career you've gotten better at not bringing those, the, the, the difficult cases home with you? Well, you know, when it's part of, well, you have to build some thick skin to deal with certain things, but you also always have to remember the human part of it. You know what I mean? Um, they still laugh at me because on that death penalty case, for that summation, I was crying in that summation for him. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, but it was that kind of moment. You know what I mean? And and it's kind of a lot of times what we try to figure out. Like you asked me, how did I get here? And I'm trying to figure out how did that guy get to that spot where he's now facing the death penalty. And I, if you want to know the truth, he had murdered three women. It was the he had tortured them. It was crazy. And my first thought is, man, this guy's just there's no saving him. Even my wife said, you know, you're not gonna be able to save this guy. I said, I'm gonna save him. She went, you got some social workers on there. I said, I got a few, but it wasn't that. I had to be able to find out how he got there. You know what? And you know what? You know, after I saw the journey that got him there, I really, you know, you know, if he had been, if he had what I had when I grew up, he probably wouldn't have been there. But like he was, like I told him, I, I think one of the things I said in the death penalty is, you know, he was living under the, with alligators from the time he was born. You know what I mean? And, you know, so we, we get upset that he, that he came out and bit somebody. But, you know, but, uh, you know, I also realized that, you know, we have jails for a reason because, you know, and it made him, you know, such that he couldn't really function in society. Have you ever had a moment where it's just been too much, where you've thought, I can't keep doing this type of work? It's just too emotionally draining? Well, after the death penalty, I had a case where a girl was killed in a gap store in, in, in Manhattan. And uh, so I felt like there was just like a moment, you know, where, you know. It was like some heavy stuff back oh, to back. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a, you know, tough case. And she was, she was a really, you know, you don't know the victim sometimes. But, you know, speaking with the prosecutor, one thing I knew the woman volunteered to push wheelchair-bound people around during the summer, you know what I mean, while she was working. She was just like, a, you know, a person that, you know, cared about society. And, you know, the, the jury thinks that my client interacted with her in a way so she's no longer with us. Um, and, uh, and she had a terrible death. So that was kind of tough. Um, do you do you ever have a, a difficult time? I, I, I sometimes struggle with this, and I've, I've just started doing a little bit of criminal law in the last year. And just, you know, sometimes just seeing, you know, the victim or seeing the victim's family in court and sort of knowing what they, you know, just think about you and assume about you. Do you ever do you ever struggle with that? You know, I mean, that's called your humanity. But I, you know what my job is? To make sure that the district attorney 
proves the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, I mean, you know, other movies, you know, like I think we're like the last gladiators. So we're standing in there and this guy's depending on me to fight as hard as I can within the rules. I mean, one thing, you know, I mean, I, I don't really do a lot of crazy things I see other people doing. I go, man, that that's bizarre. You know what I mean? I'm not going to mention names, stuff like that. But, you know, but like one one lawyer, he's like, they asked him, what do you think? Should we kill this guy? Yeah, don't kill him in front of your, but his, don't kill him when his mom's there, though. I'm like, what? I mean, you know, it's bizarre stuff that sometimes we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. What's the answer? No, don't kill him. <laughs> it's just, just stop, stop thinking like that. You know, there's a, there is a common refrain, and I heard it when I was leaving uh, the AG's office to become in part a defense attorney, that the, some of the best criminal defense attorneys kind of blur the line between criminality and being the actual attorney, and it sounds like that's what you're talking about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you, 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 you just your job is to fight as hard as you can within the law. But if they want to blur the line, they don't come to me. There's all their blur the line. They're, they're smart enough to find the blur the line guys. You know, they're, they're out there. You know what I mean? At least until somebody, until they get caught. But yeah, it's tough. You, but you're. I mean, the hardest thing. I think I, I, I actually got a guy acquitted of murder, and like two, three months later, he killed somebody else. And so those, those are tough things. But. The first case, there wasn't enough evidence to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's that's our standard. You know what I mean? We don't walk on hot coals anymore. You know, it's, it, you, you've talked, you know, you talked about your investigator going out into the world and investigating. You've talked about kind of doing your own emotional search of your client to really figure out what they're about. And now you're talking about the prosecution having to do their job yeah. and investigate and make sure that they prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It, what it really comes down to, it sounds like you're talking about effort, right? Yeah. Putting the work in, putting well, the time in. To, you have to put in the work. Like I said, one of those movies I love too is My Cousin Vinny because, you know, you see this silly movie, but I think that any guy who wants to practice law, you know, he's actually doing the investigation. Now, I hire somebody to do that. You know what I mean? But he's doing the investigation. It's so important. I'm not going to mention the client's name, but there were 21 people charged with a murder in Queens. And I must have watched this video. You know, sometimes you watch it and you see it, but you don't see it. And, and then it clicked on me. And I saw that he was actually innocent. And I was able, out of, he's the only one out of 21 people to get acquitted. Everyone else got convicted of something, some murder, some this. It's like, where's Waldo? The, uh... Yeah, he was the only guy, and you know he, you know, he, you know, he, there were twenty one defendants. He was in jail for five years before I could get him acquitted, and um, they ran out of money to pay me, and, and you know, and I, you know, that moment, you like, you know, I, you know, I just can't leave him. You know what I mean? And his, you know, his mom came to me. Please don't leave my son. He jokes with me. You know, he goes, I should have got Steve Murphy. He would have got me out sooner. <laughs> <laughs> what? What advice would you give to a you know a law student or someone early in their career who thinks that they want to be a defense attorney and sort of doing these death penalty cases and similar work to the work you're doing now? Find somebody, and you'd be surprised. Most guys are pretty nice. Ask them, can I follow you around? Sure. See if you like it. My son's followed me around. And he's decided this is this is what he wants to do. I wouldn't, you... I wouldn't let anyone follow me around. <laughs> I don't like hanging out with people. Did you have, coming up, did you have mentors that 
um, you sort of learn the ropes from? Who did I learn the ropes from? Well, we I had like the training in in um, you know in legal aid, and was the legal aid training good? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean. Apologies to, to anyone from the DA's office that's listening to this, but they, they had training. But ultimately, you you can't help but feel like you're thrown into the fire the first time you walk into court. Yeah, initially. But, I mean, one, you have to be able to ask for help. And two, I I don't think people understand the importance of investigation. You know what I mean? That, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many times I got a call from a guy as I was driving over here. Sheldon, I represented him. He must be 40 now when he was 15 in family court. And he was charged with burglary. And, you know, they were going to send him up, you know, in juvenile facility for God God knows how long. So I sent my investigator over to complain it. And the complainant says, you know what? I didn't see him do it, but I know he did it. That was the case. That was the case. That simple. That's not even investigation. That's just taking a basic step. Yeah. Putting a little bit of, like we talked about before, effort into but it. But I, I might be the only lawyer, and, and, and I also have lawyers who've come up under me and, you know, like, and they've gone on their own. We're like the only ones who send out investigators. A lot of people, they get the case. They just have the case. They get the money. They, they show up. I won a suppression hearing because I sent out Artie and he found a camera that caught the stop by the police. And the police officer made a statement about how the stop went down and the camera showed he was lying. Guy had a gun and drugs, but the camera showed that the stop was bad. And so it's, you know, but if you don't look, you can't find. How can, you know, how can law students, we're obviously kind of living in a society now where everything happens very fast, right? You want something, you get something quickly. People are looking, even law students, there's all these resources to do better in class. How can law students who want to be trial attorneys, how can they learn some of these lessons? What can they do to position themselves to do the right thing, either for the state, if they're a prosecutor or for their clients, um, and kind of learn from what you're saying? Well, I've actually helped out at Hofstra a little bit. And t- tomorrow night I'm going over to um, St. John's. They want me to to uh, do, show how to do an opening statement or something like that. But um, they, I think they have to take these mock trial, you know, courses. I was amazed. There were a couple students, you know, I actually um, helped the DA in evaluating some of the students on mock trial. And they were excellent. They were excellent. And one of the students actually, before he was in mock trial, my son had said to me, "You gotta, you gotta see this. You gotta have this kid as an intern." And um, I had him as an intern. He was phenomenal. I'm close to some of the DAs. I said to the to one of the supervisors, um, "You you have to take this kid as an intern. He's the best intern that I've ever had." And they look. I said, "Trust me." They brought him in, and he worked like they wouldn't believe, like, like you wouldn't believe. And that supervisor wanted to hire him, and but they were hesitating. So he actually was in Hofstra, and he did the clinics in Nassau also, and he got hired by the Nassau DA. But he's excellent. But it's you have to do the clinics. But you also, he volunteered the first 
year, that first summer, he came in, let me follow you around. And so he actually did a trial with me. We did a trial in Nassau, and he got to see, you know, what you do, you know? Do you think, how much of it is just sort of the the intangibles, like being a good lawyer? Like, can, do you think you can you can walk into a classroom and see you know, who's going to be a good trial attorney based on, you know, just personality? Or do you think that you could, you can sort of shape them and grow them based on experience? And there's personality helps and, you know, but you can, sometimes I go to federal court and, you know, they're not always the most personable, but then they have a wheelbarrow full of evidence and they're very prepared. Okay. Right. So, I mean, you know, uh, you know, it sounds like it sounds like you though are someone who you talked earlier about how you know from the time you were a child, even before you had any preparation in the law, you were able to you know talk your way out of things, and you had a way of you know smiling at the right people and doing the right thing to sort of get your way out of trouble. And I'm sure that that translates to sort of the the lawyer or or that sort of comes through as the lawyer you are today. It, it doesn't hurt, but there's no there's no substitute for work. And, you know, I hear also like, ah, there's no lawyers, there's no business, no, there's no that. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's true. I mean, the problem is sometimes we get in our office and we want the phone to ring and we're looking at the phone and it's not ringing, right? I mean, and so we need to go places where, you know, and meet people. That's why like you go to the bar association or you go, uh, Judge Brown, Kenny Brown, he said to me, you need to go to this political club. And I go, what do I need to go to this political club for? He said, I'm telling you, you have to go. So he sent me over there and you know, they, oh, Judge Brown sent you. Okay. And I, 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 I think I, you know, I started out, um, like carrying petitions and people would sign for candidates, you know, and I'm like, boy, this is great, you know. But uh, then I, I, I started doing election law cases and, and, but it's just my circle of people that I knew increased. So that's, that's what it's about. So I'm wondering if you have any major regrets in your career, anything that you would have done differently if you could go back and start over? I'm, trying to think of regrets you might not have noticed this but I'm a pretty positive kind of person and I don't really have regrets because I actually try every day to do the right thing and one of the DAs one time called me up on it would have had been a death penalty case and he said I'm calling you as a witness against your client because he's lying about a proffer and I go boy this is something that should ruin my career in Queens right I'm testifying against a client and I said to myself you know all you can do in this situation is tell the truth and always remember do the right thing and so I don't really have regrets um my wife is mad at me I turned down a judgeship but you know what I rather I'd rather be fighting than being the referee and maybe in three or four years that may change but right now I'm, I'm, I'm in the fight you know I don't really have regrets if you do become a judge because I've heard rumors about you becoming a judge or potentially other things you hear rumors um, how do you think your experience you know you've obviously been on one side of the aisle for for however long you've been practicing now how do you think that experience will shape your ability to be fair-minded if you if you become a judge one day and kind of thinking about how other judges act and operate 
Well, I th- remember that thing I told you about the doing the right thing. You know, I mean, you have to, you know, you know, try to make sure. I think one of the things is, as for like someone like me, trying to make sure you don't get too involved in the process. Like, don't you take over the lawyers' cases, you know? But, but also at the end of the trial, you know, you know, if they want, like, listen, I think you you should have done this or you should have done. Try to, you know, try to help them just like I do now with, you know, like with, you know, with like the mock trial, the moot court, that kind of thing. Um, but you know. I think I'm a fair person. You know where it gets more difficult um, is sometimes doing the right thing, I guess, for a judge is compromised by thinking about what the result will be if you do it. And that's the danger. But me... I'm always going to try to do the right thing. I'm always, you know, if it should be suppressed, I'm going to suppress. If if you should, you know, if you if you should be convicted because the evidence says that, I'm not going to try to shape it one way or another. Um the caveat though, if you think that the person shouldn't be convicted, that's when it gets to be more troubling. Because, but you know what, it, you know, it's not a perfect system. So we function in it. There's some free uh, campaign time for you before you start. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to, I just want to circle back a little bit more just for continuity. Can you just talk a little bit about um, what you did after Legal Aid Society, sort of what the next steps were in your career? I I actually went on the 18B panel and um, started trying cases. And uh, having was this, was this your own practice? My own practice. I I was in with a couple other people. We formed like a partnership to kind of aid each other. We are all like criminal defense attorneys. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. 1992, I had a un, had an unbelievable year. I think I won either seven or eight straight trials. And I have a theory. Jesse Jackson ran for president. They picked the jury. I might have won some of them anyway, but they picked the jury pool, came from all these people, like young, you know, like because it came right off the recent voter rolls. And we had all these young black, you know, jurors. And, and, you know, because a lot of times with trials, too, trials are actually won and lost, I believe, in jury selection. And I think after that, I became mortal. And I started losing. But, but there was a moment <laughs> when I thought, man, this stuff is easy. Look at this. <laughs> Murder, not guilty. <laughs> they still they still joke because uh, uh, there was a DA who um, her, and her and they 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 had her uh, try the case against me. And it was so funny. And she tells the jury, you know. It's all right if you like Mr. Renfro. We like him too, but that's not what this is about. It's about the evidence. And I, I want to object, but how do you object when the DA is saying how much she likes you? You know what I mean? And, and uh, I lost that case, but it was, uh, you know. So they, they would joke and say, Renfro, if you get on another winning streak, we're bringing that DA back and we're going to sick that DA on you again. So, you know. But I, I was human a, again. I had a defense attorney call me very handsome to the jury. <laughs> and I said, thank you. <laughs> The judge was not happy. <laughs> but I, you know, 
it was just an interesting moment. But yeah, and you know, you, you just have a format and follow it. You get the case, you do the investigation the next day. The most beautiful thing in Queens now is that they make you wave for like three weeks, okay? So that you get arrested and you don't see the judge again for three weeks. By the way, waving just means you have a certain amount of days you have to try a case in speedy trial time and in Queens they waive that speedy trial, they make you waive that speedy trial time to negotiate. And it's the perfect opportunity to send out the investigator they show up, they talk to the person, you, they come back, they tell you everything, you know, well, I think I should take a plea or I think I should go to trial. See, because there are other places in the country. I, I've been upstate. I've done cases upstate. Um, the trial is, a felony trial is 70 days after indictment, something like that. You have wow. Like, you have, like, your motions, 45 days. You do the hearings two weeks thereafter, and then you do the trial thereafter. It's like rocket dockets, like in federal court. You know, so you have to, but I, I could hire, I send my investigator out. I know what, it, what we're doing. Yeah. New York city criminal cases. It's a war of attrition. The Bronx, I have put three people in the grand jury in the Bronx on murders. They've all had good results because it takes five years to go to trial in the Bronx on a murder. Guy sitting in for five years. It's insane. The jury pool in the Bronx isn't too bad either for, uh, right. for the defense bar. But, but. But they were all good results, you know. <laughs> I came up with a new kind of uh, defense. A little bit of self-defense and a little bit of Chicago. He had it coming. <laughs> it only works in the Bronx. <laughs> I've had a couple of those, you know, like, he had it coming. <laughs> all right, Chris. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Okay. But thank you so much for your time. Thanks Greatly for having me. appreciate you coming on.